0: Tom Arnold, that some of you may know, funny man of sorts, especially funny man in the 90s, he wrote a book that has the cleverest title of any book I have yet seen, and that might be hyperbolic, but I think it's probably true, and it is cleverly titled this, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. (laughs) That's a fantastic title, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years. And Scott Sauls, by way of Ann Voskamp, talks about Tom Arnold. See, that's a lot of credit giving. And Kathy showed it to me. So there's like six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon somehow. (laughs) But Tom Arnold, in an interview about this book, How I Lost Five Pounds in Six Years, is talking about the source of his funny. Why does he write books like these? Why does he try so hard to make people laugh? What is he up to? And he admits in a moment of candor like all kinds of people in his position would admit that what drives me to be funny is that down deep I'm a fundamentally broken person and I really just want people to like me. I'm not that much different than a kindergartner might say or than any of us might say. I know there's something defective in me. I know there's not something right in me. I know I have this keen sense that people ought not like me probably, but I really, really want them to. I want to belong with them. I want to matter to them. I want to be connected to them, and I want their eyes to light up when they see me. So I wrote a book, How to Lose Five Pounds in Six Years. It's funny. Will you like me if I'm funny enough? John, the last living apostle probably when he wrote this, who lived the longest of the apostles and was probably the oldest, wrote this letter. And in chapter 2 now is recognizing our susceptibility to the same kind of dynamic that Tom Arnold feels. The sense that we have gaping holes of defect within us and we're looking for some way or another to patch them up. It doesn't always occur to us to let God do that, so we We look out and say, maybe if we can live like everybody else, if we can get enough people to like us, if we can have enough things, if we can make enough accomplishment, if our body can look a certain way, then maybe we'll matter. Maybe this deep, nagging, insidal thing, insidal is a great word, look it up, will go away or be repaired John knows that we are susceptible to this, and so he starts in verse 12, which is where we're going to primarily, we're going to look at verse 12 down to the end. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers. He's talking to a congregation. Because you have known him from the beginning, Who is was from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he repeats it, as Dave noted. I write to you, dear children, because you've known the Father. I write to you, fathers, or as Eugene Peterson would say in the message, trying to help us understand, what's he up to when he's talking about fathers and young men? He says, I write to you, veterans, those who've been at it for a while, because you've been on the ground floor with God. I write to you, young men, you youngsters, you newcomers to the faith, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John knows that we are susceptible because of our inner constitution to looking for all manner of ways to offset our defects. And so he is reminding God's people right here with an invitation for their soul to swell. That's the first point. He wants their soul to swell with God's provision. He wants their soul to swell with God's provision where they feel bereft, where they feel empty, where they feel aching and lost. He wants their soul to swell with God's provision. And so he writes to them and he reminds them of something. And he uses these names, these family names, fathers and young men, dear children. And he reminds them what's been done for them. He reminds them without qualification how they've been acted upon. Hey, kids. Your sins have been forgiven. All the things that you, when you look in the mirror and you see seven-tenths chicken, phony, or slob. And you love your slobbery in some way, as Frederick Beekner says. When you look at that, that's not what God sees. Because he's wiped those things clean. All those pollutants in you have been cleared out. So you have a cause for joy because you've got nothing to hide. You veterans, you've known him who's from the beginning. You've known the one who knows you, who sees everything about you and won't turn his face away. And you've got experience of proving him and trusting him. And and you're his. You know him. I want to remind you. And you youngsters, you've overcome the evil one. You've been ripped out of the kingdom of darkness. You might not think it. You might not feel like you have. But you remember our theology that says you're dead in sins and transgressions that natural people without God's intervention don't have any particular interest in God until He defibrillates their soul, until He rejuvenates them and resuscitates them and makes them suddenly have an interest in Him. if you have an interest in Him, it's because He previously had an interest in you You've been ripped out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. I want you to remember it because you may not remember it. You may not think it's true because you know the sourness in your own life. You know how you treated your kids this morning on the way to work. uh, Church. Sorry. (laughs) And so He reminds them. And He says the same thing twice, essentially. It's important to realize this because if you have kids, you do a similar thing. When you put them to bed at night, you don't say to your kids, well, little Sally, I told you that I loved you when you were two, so we're good. Take care, kid. I hope you hope nothing gets you in the night. And then you just walk out. I mean, you don't say that, right? You say, I love you. And you... Do ridiculous things that would be embarrassing for other people to watch. But they're nuzzling things, and they're warm things, and they're reassuring things, and they say, you matter to me, child. You're precious to me, child. And I'm going to keep telling you. So every time you leave me, I "I love you, honey. You say in the course of a parenting career, you tell your children, this is scientifically proven, 1,362,765,000 times that you love them. Why don't you just say it once? They know. Well, you tell them a lot because you want to keep reaffirming them. You want to keep reminding them, you matter here. You belong here. You are someone. You have been the recipient of graces. Now, I want you to live out of it. That's what John is telling these folks. He's he's about to tell them not to sin, not to love the world, not to turn their back on God. But before he does that, he says, I want your soul to swell with something here, with this provision of God to remind you who you really are because you're going to forget this. Because these things I'm saying about you, you're forgiven, you know God, you've overcome the evil one. This is not the stuff you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you're like, Woo! where's the coffee? I've overcome the evil one. You don't wake up in the morning, most of you are like, get me my Bible. Word of God's in me. I want to get more of it in me. I'm about to open up an industrialized size can of destroying evil. If that doesn't work well, you can't curse in a sermon. (laughs) This is not our normal stature, so we need to be told. We need to be reassured. And so John is basically saying, you've received something really remarkable. It's changed your whole status, your whole orientation towards God. And so I want you to live out of that no matter what you think about yourself. I'm telling you what God thinks about it. You don't belong to evil. You know him. He knows you, and you are clean. Act like it's true. Later he's going to say, so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. David Brooks illustrates this really perfectly well when he was asked recently, at Washington University in St. Louis in a panel with E.J. Dionne, or what's his name? He's asked by a Krista Tippett, how is it that you've become so interested in religion in recent years? And he goes on to say, and you know who David, David Brooks is, a, the conservative writer for the New York Times, which he says is akin to being the, the head rabbi at Mecca. <laughs> There's like, there are no conservative readers of the New York Times. And so hes I'm the conservative writer, and he said, well, there are three reasons why I've really gotten interested in religion. I grew up a fairly secular Jewish person, but I've gotten interested in religion. And one of those is the experience of grace. And he says, one day, I was driving home from being on TV, and I drove into my yard, I mean, into my, (laughs) that would have been bad, into my driveway. And as I was driving to my driveway, it was still summer. It was 7 o'clock at night. The sun was still out. And I noticed my three kids, 12, 9, and 4 at the time, and they they were bounding through the yard. They were kicking a ball that they had gotten at the supermarket. They were frolicking. They were landing on each other like puppies. They were laughing and giddy and filled with joy. And I just stood there and gazed at them through the windshield of my car. And the sun was peeking through the trees so elegantly. And for some reason, my yard looked perfect. And, of course, your yard never looks perfect, not to you. And I had this sense right there in that moment. This sense, this tableau of perfect family life. Momentary and fleeting because these things happen, what, for the 16th of a second. And then one of those kids is going to bloody the other's nose, and the other's going to hit them in the eye with the ball, and they're going to scream at you, and then your whole evening's ruined. But that moment... That moment, he said, I was overwhelmed with a sense of my unworthiness to receive such happiness. Why should I be getting this? Why should I be experiencing the magic of this particular moment? And he said, that's what grace is. This realization of a happiness that I don't deserve, that I'm completely unworthy of it. But once I experience it, there's something in my soul that starts to swell and wants to be worthy of the grace that I've been given. There's something about receiving this that makes me say. they want to breathe in and say I want to live out of this. I want to live like this. I want to respond to this. Why should I be given such a glimpse of something so magnificent that makes me so full inside? He says that's your soul swelling. That's what John is wanting to have happen today. Kim captured it when she prayed a minute ago and said God I'm sure your heart is very full and smiling because of these children do you imagine God's heart being full and smiling not sneering John says his heart is full and I want your soul to swell with the fullness of God's heart so that you're not tempted to try to fill yourself in the ways that the world tells you to I want you to know your soul to swell with God's provision And I don't want you to be, second point, susceptible to the world's enticement. He goes on. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and what he does does not come from the Father, but it comes from the world. The world and its desires, they pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. God doesn't want you to be... I mean, John, God inspiring this, doesn't want you to be susceptible to the world's enticement. Two things about this. One, the obvious question that depending on how you grew up and how you hear this and how conscientious you are, when you hear, do not love the world or anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Everything in the world doesn't come from the father but from the world you start to think well does that mean does that mean god hates it when we laugh does that mean god hates us to enjoy pretty trees and what about julie andrews was she just being pagan when she said raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens and bright copper kettles and warm woollen mittens Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things that the Lord despises. (laughs) And what about cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels and doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles? A song about my favorite things and the thought that John here is saying, you better hate all that stuff because that ain't God's stuff. Well, that'd be a legitimate thing to wonder about some of you have grown up in a world like that this evangelicals had a sense of this like don't have anything to do hate everything that the world does and it's important to see one when the bible talks about the word world sometimes the world is a word that describes the things that god made after he made them he said these are good these are very good this is so good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit back on heaven's front porch and smoke a pipe and just take it all in for a day after creation. Where's that Jack and Coke? No. God likes the world that he made. He's trying to redeem it. He's going to make it all new. He loved the world so much that he sent his son into it not to condemn it, but that he might save it. So there's a very real aspect of the world that has created stuff, And God loves that stuff. And Paul would tell us that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So John's not saying don't like people and puppies and kittens and apple strudel and Krispy Kreme donuts. These are good. They're very good. But all the things in the world can be an enticement that leads you not toward God, but away from Him. That's what he's worried about. See, C.S. Lewis had the right idea. You've heard me say it many times before. He says, I'm trying to learn to turn all my pleasures into channels of adoration. That's the biblical way of thinking about this. It's when you notice a sunset. You don't worship the sunset. You say, holy cow, God, look what you did. That is magnificent. When you drink a tasty beverage or you delight in these children up here. You recognize the pleasure you feel is a gift from you. God doesn't hate pleasure. He invented it. It's His domain. Some of you have been worked and you'll have feelings like when you start to smile or laugh or feel happy, you think God's going, no, 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 no. You don't deserve that. You shouldn't be happy. Turn your pleasure into a channel of adoration. God's the one who hands pleasures to you. You like driving your car or sitting in your house. You like a show. You like... Your kids or your spouse or your friend, these are gifts, and you enjoy God with them. But what the Bible means, what John means in particular when he talks about world, he means this system that has gone AWOL from God. He means the system that has collectively said, with an extended middle finger and maybe even another one, you're not the Lord of us, we don't care about you, we're opposed to you, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to value what we want to value. We don't care what you say. That's what John's talking about—a whole system that is opposed to God, that is run by the Prince of Darkness. That's how the Bible talks about it. That's what he's saying. Don't love that. Don't love the world's values. Don't don't love a way of being that has nothing to do with God. So that's one thing. The, he knows you're susceptible to the world's enticement, but that doesn't mean that you're to hate pleasure or, or created things. The other thing this means is you've got to think about the fact that morality in the Bible is personal. This is an important point. I've I, I approached it last week a little bit. Morality in the Bible is personal. John basically says there is this warring going on, you can love the world or you can love the father. You can love this way of life or you can love this other way of life, but it's not neutral. It is very personal. And in fact, before this he talks about the the idea that if you say you love God and you hate your brother, if you say I love Jesus, but boy do I hate Phil. He says you're yes, who is Phil? There's a Phil in every group, Hank. (laughs) We all have a Phil somewhere. And if your name is Phil, sorry. That's just the name that came to me. It could have been something else. Nigel. That's the name we use because I don't know any Nigels here. He makes this thing realize that the laws of God, they're personal. They can be boiled down to this loving God and loving God. Your neighbor, but that's not how the world thinks about it. That's not even how the world thinks about doing good. If some of you have seen this, this show called The Good Place that's out, I was, I was told to watch this by these people here. And I, I, I watched one episode of it, and I may watch some more. And one of the interesting things, the premise of this show is that this lady, Kristen Bell, dies. She arrives in heaven type place, The Good Place. And she finds out that she actually is only there by some kind of error. She's not supposed to be there. They have her mistaken for someone else. But one of the things that they do when they start to explain to her how it is that people get to the good place, first of all, explain all the religions were mostly wrong about this, and the good place has nothing to do with God. That's another interesting thing to me. There's no mention of God in the good place, which is another interesting thing. But... They say this, Matt and Lisa drew this to my attention, there's a, there's a scorekeeping sort of a heavenly app that keeps track. This is the way the show is spilling this out. And so you get points for good things you do, and you get deductions for bad things you do, and in the end, you know, your sort of net add to the world is what gets you into the good place. So that's a basic misunderstanding of Christian theology. But it is the way a lot of people think. But if I do more bad than good, it weighs itself out, that kind of thing. But the kinds of things that they envision being good are like, if you're a vegan, you get 100 points. But if you're a vegan and you don't tell anybody about it, you get 1,000 points. If you rescue a stray dog, are you, instead of buying a... A designer dog get a rescue puppy. Well, that's worth a number of points, you know, and you pay your bills on time and you pick up your trash. But if you litter, you throw your cigarette butt on the ground. You know, and so there's all these sort of impersonal net ads or subtractions that don't have anything to do with another person or with God. It's just like there's an arbitrary standard. And, of course, the person who's going to teach her morality is a moral ethics teacher who's teaching her Kant, Immanuel Kant. But the Bible doesn't believe that morality works that way. For the Bible, it recognizes that all the rules of life are personal rules. They have to do with God, and they have to do with other people. So it's not like there's just this standard rule. Like somebody might say, an admiral at a graduation ceremony says, you know, in the Navy SEALs we say, if you want to change the world, make your bed. It's a great great piece of advice. But it's not meritorious. It's just a good piece of advice. It's a good rule for managing your life. But what happens in the scriptures, and this is what John is saying. He says, I write to you, dear children, so that you will not not sin. Don't love the world or anything in the world, which includes lusting and craving and boasting. But love the Father. The Bible wants you to recognize that when you do things, you're doing them either for or against God. When you do things, you're doing them for or against another person. That's why Mike Mason could say one of the difficulties and the magnificences of marriage is that love always gets reduced down to some very specific rules. Every household here, whether you're married or not, you live with roommates or in your job, there are all these rules that love always becomes more concrete, not abstract. Not real love gets concrete. And these rules are, thou shalt remember the day of thy anniversary. Thou shalt not forget to take out the trash. Thou shalt not run your power saw when your wife is home because she hates the sound of it. These very specific things that take another person into account, that's what love does. It's concerned about honoring Another, It's concerned about the other having influence and space and weight in your life. And so the world right now has all kinds of rules that make you good or not, but they don't have anything to do with God. So say you drive a Toyota Pius. Prius. <laughs> That's a joke from South Park that someone told me. Well right now of course you are a more virtuous and righteous person if you drive a Toyota Pius, and if finally, finally. <laughs> Corby is the only person in our whole church who drives one. <laughs> no, we have two. We have two. I'm just kidding. No, we have three. The Simons have one now too, don't you? I'm just going to uh, pious shame everyone. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care what car you drive. I put Corby's car in my pocket the other day for a joke. <laughs> it took a while he thought it was my phone (laughs) there are all these things that we say one must do and one of the big tests for whether you're loving the world or loving the father is you're asking this but what does God say about this and am I doing this to please God or not to please God am I doing this for the good of another or not for the good of another that's the question when it comes to, my loving the world, is what does God say? What does, how does God feel about this? See, that's a very different question than merely saying, what's right? It's saying, what does my father want? It's very different. It also helps you with these areas where things get gray, because you go out into the world just like a kid leaving his house, And you come up against situations that you don't have a specific rule for, but you can say, you know, I don't think my parents would like that. Oh, I think my parents would love it if I did this. Oh, this would be so beneficial to them if I did this. Morality in the Bible is personal. And John knows that, and that's why he's telling you to love the Father, not the world. The world's going to tell you, the world's going to tell you just Do what's right according to whatever standards of honor we've created. They may or may not have anything to do with God. John wants your soul to swell with God's provision. He wants you not to be susceptible to the world's enticement. The pleasure is from God, and morality is personal. And this last thing is this. I close with well, this is the last point. John is calling you now to short term weirdness for long-term vitality. God, through John, is calling you to short-term weirdness for long-term vitality. He says, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, these are characteristic actions of worldliness, of living as if God isn't there, as if God has no say, as if God isn't actually involved. And so here's what happens. If you heed what John's saying, I can make a guarantee to you. You will feel embarrassed and weird sometimes. Here's how Jesus said it. Disciples, the world, what's the word I'm looking for? Hates me. And they're going to hate you too. Inasmuch as anything about our belief and our connection to Christ, shows up anything stain-wise, shame-wise, discomfort-wise in another, or goes against the standards of honor and care in the world right now, you are going to be hated. You're going to be vilified. You're going to be thought strange and weird. And the only thing the Bible has to say about that is, If you are thought strange and weird, good, because that means you're one with your Savior who was strange and weird. He was hated. He was put to death. The Bible says you're aliens and strangers. If you're an alien and a stranger, that means sometimes you're going to feel weird. You're going to feel left out. You're going to feel embarrassed. And that's hard for us. C.S. Lewis has this great article about the inner ring where he says the lure of the caucus is really a mainspring of action for most people. In other words, in a time where people are not chaste where sexual promiscuity is the rule, people will give up their chastity not because they have sexual desire but because they don't want to be odd. Or in places where people are thinking one way about how to use money and how to think about the poor, people will go along with it so as not to seem outcast. It is terrifying to us. Ask Tom Arnold to think that someone might not like us. To think that, oh, no, if I do this, people are going to laugh at me or they're going to think I'm weird. One man said, I realized early on in my life how much people are willing to pay in their lives so as not to ever feel embarrassed. Think about that in your own life. What will you not say or do or stand up for? Because you just don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want someone to think poorly of you. And what are you paying? How are you holding yourself back? How is your faith being held back? How are you being held captive? Because you're really susceptible to applause or accolade of people that aren't God. Saying, yes, you're one of us. Or no, you're not. John calls you to short-term weirdness for long-term. Vitality. (sighs) And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him in his coming. Now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. John realizes that there is a duel here. And the decision is placed before you. Whose promises are you going to believe? All around you, promises are made. If you get the right kind of purse or the right kind of shoes, if you have the, enough money or go to the right kind of college or you get the right kind of kitchen, if you get the right kind of social esteem, if you have the right kind of look, if your hair is just right, if your body shape is a certain size, then you will feel whole. The world makes promises, and God makes promises. And John is saying, I want your soul to swell with God's promises, which say, no matter how bad you are, you can be accepted. No matter how weak you are, you can be strengthened. No matter how ashamed you are, you can have a community of belonging of people that I've acted on that can show what it is to know everything about someone and never turn their face away. But you got to pick I told someone this week, thinking about teenagers, that it applies in every realm. And I probably stole this from somebody because everything I say is derivative and stolen from someone. I just don't know who I stole it from. But this idea that as adolescents you walk into scenes, you might go into a scene where they're uh, smoking, I believe they call it the marijuana. Or they're drinking heavily or doing things sexually that you don't feel comfortable about. But so many kids, if they go into a situation like that and they haven't decided ahead of time, this ain't me. I don't play this. The lure of the caucus will be so strong. The hunger not to be left out, not to be ridiculed, not to be made fun of, will be so massive that you'll do what you don't want to do. So that you won't be rejected. You'll think your whole worth and your whole vitality depends on the approval of numbskulls. We do it. Grownups do it too. And what John is saying is, look, you need to decide each day that you live by God's grace. You want your soul to swell there. So you're going to keep running to him. And here's the comfort At the beginning of this chapter, he says, I write to you, dear children, so that you will not sin. And if you're a careful reader, you go, oh, no. Like, that's a little heavy-handed, John, so we won't sin? It's pretty wide and comprehensive. And he says, but if we do sin, if anyone sins, we have one who advocates before the Father for us. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atonement for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. And John is asking you, are you going to say, I am broken, so I need to shop. I need to consume. I need to veg out. I need other people to like me better. Or are you going to say, I'm broken. I need to be repaired by the grace of God the one who advocates for me no matter what you got to choose this before you go out into the world each day i belong to jesus christ i want my soul to swell i want yours to also so we go out into the world and we don't love the world but we love the father and we take our lives as his assignments to us to share this grace everywhere